Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. I was first introduced to today's guest a number of years ago when I read his book, Final Theory. I uh, remember thinking, oh, who is this guy? And what, what's his background? What's this all about? And eventually our paths crossed in person at a writing conference up in New York City. And we became good friends as a result of that. And over the years, it's been fantastic to watch his career take off. And uh, and so I'm, I'm thrilled that Mark Alpert is Joining me today, he is a former editor at Scientific American and the internationally best-selling author of 11 novels. As I mentioned, Final Theory was his first book. It was published in 23 languages, an option for film. Uh, his latest novel, The Doomsday Show, uh, has, is coming out here the first week of October. The, the first book in his trilogy of young adult novels, The Six, was a finalist for numerous awards. And in 2021, he won the Best Novel Award from the William Faulkner Literary Competition. He also has studied astrophysics at Princeton University and poetry at Columbia University, where he, where he received an MFA in creative writing. His website is markalpert.com. So, Mark, thanks for being here today. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for inviting me. Something I didn't know about you is actually the poetry studying. Like I've known that you're a scientist and that you worked with Scientific American for, for many years, um, but uh, that was new news for me. I didn't know about, it doesn't surprise me super much, but um, congratulations on that. That's, that's fascinating. Well, I was a young, confused, romantic young man and- uh -huh. uh, that That's my excuse. I, I loved writing poetry back then. I, I actually got a- MFA in poetry from Columbia, uh, but then I had to get a job. And so oh. I became a journalist. I was a newspaper reporter for and a journalist for about 25 years after that, before I uh, published novels enough to uh, to make that my living. So, but poetry was the beginning for me. I, it surprises uh, um, a lot of people to hear, but I love reading poetry and philosophy. Um, I feel like poetry really helps me with word choice for my writing, my novels, and Philosophy helps me ask big questions, questions that matter. And uh, of course, I love writing, uh, reading suspense and thrillers, what I write, but but I, I tend to like a wide variety of things like that. And I feel like it can inform our writing too, you know, as, as far as writing thrillers and so on. Oh, definitely. I mean, when I was studying poetry, I was totally in love with Yeats and T.S. Eliot mm. and Auden. Um, and then and then I encountered some of the more modern poets uh, like John Berryman and Mark Strand. And I love that. And, and I think, yeah, you know, um, it is it is the, the, the gateway for many writers. <laughs> uh, you know, it's 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 somewhat quick. to It's not easy to dash off a poem, but, you know, the inspiration can hit you. you know, they say it's kind of like uh, when lightning hits you uh, on a hilltop. And mm. and uh, the great poets are the ones who stand on hills all day waiting for the lightning to strike. Aha. There you go. Now, I also know that you were recently over in Ireland, and we were chatting about this earlier, but you are a James Joyce fan, 
And you and your wife read Ulysses aloud to each other. Now you said it took six months. Oh, yeah. It was actually a little more than six months. We were still reading it on the airplane flight. Oh, wow. Because, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a long book, but it's also, you know, difficult. And, and uh, you have to stop every, uh, every, every few sentences to say, now, what, is, what did he mean by that? Because a lot of his references are about things in Ireland in 1904. Luckily, oh, wow. there's a lot of online resources. So if you want to read Ulysses by James Joyce, um, you can go to these online sites and they'll have explanations for some of the uh, references that Joyce makes. Wow. But, but like I told you before, it's good when you're reading Joyce to read Dubliners first. His short stories, they're fantastic. Then read Portrait of the Artist as a young man and then jump into Ulysses. Wow. No, I, I'm impressed. I mean, uh, I basically have never taken the deep dive and um but i'm impressed that uh that you're such a fan and also that you went over there to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the release of the book right so oh yeah yeah publication um, of Ulysses was in 1922 and it, it and it really shocked the, the literary world it was considered you know the the, the classic modern novel mm -hmm. and uh and we're still influenced it by today i mean you and you and i even though we may not have read the book we're influenced by it because it changed it, it got into that close personal you know point of view that we all use hmm. um as thriller writers now but really it was joyce who got into his character's head that thoroughly he was the first one to really to really do that yeah i didn't really know that um so tell me a little bit more about that and how that's translated or helped you this uh for people who might be listening to say like i don't know what that means first person point of view and so personal and stuff like that what um what's in a quick example of of that either you know from your one of your books maybe or just off the top of your head yeah well most of my books you know most thrillers as you know are, are standard you know third person but uh point of view but they're they're close inside the head of the character because you want to know what your character is thinking and how the character reacts um to events that are happening in your novels and so um almost all my books are third person uh you know the first one you mentioned final theory um the main character is uh it's a character sort of like me. You know, my, my, my wife used to say when I was, you know, I wrote four novels that didn't get published hmm. before the first one that did, which is pretty typical. <laughs> and I remember my wife once telling me, she said, you know, the problem with your books is your characters are too strange. Why don't you just write a character more like yourself? Because you're not such a bad guy. And <laughs> so so if that for that first novel, the, the main character is this uh, a historian of science named David Swift. And um, he was... The final theory is all about the discovery of, uh, of uh, a previously hidden uh, a, a special theory of Albert Einstein's. And I thought, well, what better character you know, to encounter than someone, a historian of science who, uh, who maybe wanted to be a scientist himself, but never uh, was smart enough. And so he thought, oh, this is, you know, it's amazing that, that this, this holy grail of science falls into his lap. I thought that that would be a great motivating thing for this right. character. But, but I wanted to tell things you know, very closely from his Point of view. I wanted. I wanted um, because it's a thriller, and and it's more exciting when um, when you can feel the characters' uh, excitement, but also their fear, their terror, um, and when surprises happen, when you're inside the character's head, those surprises will will land, you know, uh, more firmly if if uh, if you're really uh, giving giving the reader a lot of what the that main character is thinking. A lot of thrillers today will use multiple point of views within the story so they might have the main character the hero's point of view they might have say the villain or the antagonist's point of view maybe you know another main character a love interest and so on like that and 
And um, I found that I think it allows to build suspense to have multiple point of views because you can show, um, basically you can show through one character's eyes peril that another character is not aware of and cause the reader to be worried about the other character. So let's say you're in the bad guy's point of view and he enters a house and all of a sudden you flip point of views and the woman drives up to the home, gets out of the car, killer looks out, grabs a knife, edges behind the door. We flip to her point where she's walking up. We're thinking, no, no, don't open the door. He's right there. He's got a knife. And I think that's one of the reasons why the, you know, the, the flipping of point of views has become so popular in so many uh, suspense stories these days. Well, yeah, I think it's also important for um, dramatizing the motivations of your villains mm. uh, to show things from their point of view. You know, in my in my new book, The Doomsday Show, the the villains are these eco terrorists who are who are going around. They they've decided, you know, the only way to really stop global warming is to start assassinating uh, the the chief executives of the biggest fossil fuel companies, which from their point of view, seems like a desperate but sort of logical measure. And so um, what I have is, you know, one, one of the, uh, the villains is, is, is a woman who is sort of a, a prophet of sorts, but she has a lot of money. So she's able to put some of her eccentric visions into action and hires a lot of, you know, uh, uh, seedy characters and thugs and, and assassins who are willing to carry out this ecological mission. And I thought it would be very interesting to tell uh, certain chapters from her point of view, because, uh, you know, as they say, you know, in, in, in the villain uh, in in their own story considers him, herself or herself, the hero of the story. Yeah. And so I, I and and there is a little bit of weird justification for this villain. I mean, yeah, you know, in, in a way, by killing these one or two executives in a particularly grisly, gruesome ways and in ways that shock uh, everyone else and, and maybe get them to change their ways, you could make the argument, well, actually, that might save millions of lives. So in a way, maybe she is doing the right thing, even though, you know, the ordinary person wouldn't consider an assassination campaign the right thing. So telling it from her point of view helps, you know, at least dramatize that conflict for the reader. I think that's interesting. And I've tried to do that in some cases with some villains and the, 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 not disadvantage, but the, I guess the pitfall that we can fall into is where readers think, oh, are you justifying the, the, the action um, to me? Uh, I don't know, like, um, like, let's say that you're, let's say that your villain is a neo-Nazi. And um, so, but you also show that he's a family man and he's just like, really loves his kids. Um, and so some readers might be like, oh, well, you're trying to humanize, I don't know, like, you're trying to almost justify him or make me like him or something like that, where um, uh, the most interesting villains to me are multidimensional, like what you mentioned, but they do have maybe these motivations, but how do we do that? How do we portray that in a way where readers realize maybe she has a good point, but this is definitely not the way to do it. How do you do that? Well, you also have, you know, the hero's point of yeah. view, and and ideally, the hero's point of view should should contradict the, the yeah. villains. I mean, yeah. in, in my book, the hero is um, is a guy named Max Mursky, who's who's a, a former climate journalist, just like me, <laughs> uh, who who's also, but 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 you know, of course, better looking and, <laughs> and smarter, and and he's also a, a part time actor, and he performs in street theater at environmental protests, and he leads a band of, you know. 
green activists who are obviously less radical than these crazy eco-terrorists. And so, of course, what happens is he is the one who identifies the worst climate criminals. He's a journalist. And so he's he's written an article in which he, he points out these are these are the worst you know companies you know the, and and they're here's their political allies here's the list I, now, I and here's the reasons why they're the worst and the terrorists are using his list to go after their targets and so oh, of course uh. the FBI immediately arrests Max and say do you know these terrorists and he says no no of course not and he makes a point he says their campaign is crazy this is only this isn't going to work this isn't sustainable you kill one chief executive of a fossil fuel company they'll just get another it's not going to work and it makes the whole environmental movement look like a bunch of nuts and so obviously yeah. he's he's presenting the more rational viewpoint you know that the reader is really supposed to sympathize with um and and then it's interesting to see what you, what you want is to bring those two characters together the hero and the villain and and obviously you know get them to debate the issue <laughs> i've i've sort of done this yeah. in the book, you know without making it uh polemical you know mm-hmm. I, it's all dra- drama and a lot of it is done through you know the standard class, you know, thriller techniques of chases and and in speedboats and guns <laughs> and killer drones and there's microwave weapons and there's all this stuff but eventually the the two uh, antagonists have to get together and and battle it out and and the reader can decide okay who's right here who's wrong and that sort of adds a little bit of extra to the uh, to the conflict of the novel i think um now most of i think all of your books have been kind of science based uh stories or thrillers and um so i wouldn't say, I, I don't know that i would call them science fiction but science based um what would you say is sort of the difference between say the stories you write and what we might typically think of as like a science fiction story or something like that. Well, in, in a lot of the, the hard science fiction stories, they take place pretty far in the future. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a space opera. Maybe it's in a dystopian earth. My books generally take place, you know, now, or maybe mm-hmm. a few years from now. And I, I usually, um, I love Technology. I mean, I, I do have a science background. I majored in astrophysics at Princeton, and I studied general relativity, and I love science. And I was an editor at Scientific American for the last 10 years of my journalist career. So I get a lot of my ideas for science, and I, I get really passionate about it. I get excited. I like to write about it. I like to introduce readers to these ideas. But I, I generally don't pick technologies that are really, you know, out there, like, you know, mm-hmm. faster than light travel or time travel or anything like that. I pick technologies that are, that we have now, and I just push them a little farther <laughs> to, you know, to make them uh, fit into, into the, for the uses of my novels. Like, for example, you know, drones. I mean, we, we obviously know there's, there's plenty of drone technology. It's being used in the, in the war right now in Ukraine. And, uh, but, you know, I, I tweaked it a little to make drones that are just, optimized for assassinations uh-huh. and 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 i thought oh this is kind of cool you know you can use these you know right now autonomous navigation is pretty good but you know it's not perfect and so wouldn't it be interesting if there were little you know radio frequency chips and we know these these chips exist microchips and the assassin could um put some of their these things in her lipstick case perhaps and <laughs> and uh, and then mark her targets with these little and then, of course, um, an outside radio beacon will then turn on the microtransmitters, and they will serve as little homing beacons <laughs> for these now for these killer drones. And of course, they act as swarms, and they're small, 
but they have very, very, very spiky points on them. So you can imagine what would happen if a whole bunch of them converged on a target, you know, that has been uh, sprinkled with these tiny little, you know, undetectable microchips, which of course are too small to be, you know, picked up on any X-ray machine or anything like that. So I thought, yeah, this, that, so here's a technology that we're all familiar with, but, you know, just, you know, tweaked a little bit, you know, modified a little bit for the purposes of the thriller. That's, that's kind of the way I like to use science. I love it. And uh, I love stories like that. I love uh, to try to do that in the, in the books that I write a little bit. Um, but you, and, and it's almost like you take one or two facets, what, like what you just said, we have this technology or this is, uh, we're almost having, you know, this technology. And so the readers are like, okay, yeah, no, I buy it. I buy it. And then it's like, wait a minute, that's not a good thing, you know. Right. <laughs> kind of make I'm not giving fun. anybody any ideas. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I know. Um, years ago, I came up with a, an, an idea for a weapon that could basically disrupt someone's, uh, like basically give them a stroke, like, mm-hmm. or or maybe a heart attack, but it could, through a, through a wall. So it was like a, uh, an assassination weapon, right? That it would do this sort of thing. And um, so that was probably 15 years ago. And uh, and then, of course, the Havana syndrome stuff started coming out recently. And I'm like, I wonder if they read my book, because there's some similarities between whatever technology we think. And so it's it's um, it's a crazy business that we're in. You know, it's like sometimes I wonder if the NSA is like listening in on my phone calls just because of the stuff that I've read. Yeah, they're, they're suspicious. You're suspicious characters. I know. Right. Right. So um, but uh, t- I remember one of your books. I can't remember which one you'll know, I think, but it has to do with aliens landing on our planet. Yeah, that was the Orion plan. It came out about six years ago. Yeah. Now, I remember when you were telling me, I think, about the that you were talking about space travel and some of the disadvantages. And to make it realistic, you had to make some changes and stuff. If I recall, you were saying one of the disadvantages to space travel is stopping. Well, the, yeah. You know, the, the distances between stars are amazing. Yeah. Huge. And, and so that's why I, it always bugs me in science fiction books when you see huge spaceships you know you know just casually going from one even with you know technologies like warp drive the the thing is to 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 accelerate something that huge Mm -hmm. to speeds that you need to go to would just would just take so much energy it just wouldn't be worth it for Mm -hmm. any culture the only thing that you could possibly send from one star to another i think is something very small and light you know something maybe the size of you know of a microchip or, or a grapefruit or something like that and something and it would still take years to get from one uh, star system to another, but once it got there, it could be programmed to be self-replicating. In other words, it would land on an asteroid or the planet that you want to study, and it would it would start building a little factory for itself. It would it would use its programming and some simple tools to start building solar panels, for example, for power, and it would start building you know um, a little a little factory for building all, like for building rovers or all the things it needs <laughs> to explore the planet. And so I thought, well. That's in a way scarier than your typical alien invasion because it's not a huge spaceship landing on your planet. It's this tiny thing that lands maybe unobserved and starts manipulating its environment and maybe manipulating the people who the first people to discover to to run across this to stumble onto this this little alien probe and and maybe the the probe starts manipulating them. And I thought, okay, this is 
this is kind of like a little bit of like a body snatchers, but a fun update of that idea for, for science, for science novel. Yeah. See, I just, I love it because uh, people listening can't really see your eyes light up maybe as much as I can when you talk about some of these ideas, but you kind of say, well, okay, there's this technology. And I was like, what if we did this and maybe I could add this and this would make it. So I love how you keep asking the question, you know, what if we went like one more step and, and then you come up with these storylines, how important is believability in the stories that you that you write oh it's very important i mean that's that's the big stumbling block here because you don't want to go that one step too far and readers say oh this is ridiculous i'm putting down this book so so yeah and and to help me with that i have you know some some beta readers i'm in a writer's group um where we exchange um and and i've been with this writer's group since like 1992 you know these are people i know well and they can tell that you know sometimes if i don't recognize myself that i I, i've gone a little bit too far in in one of my things in one of my you know chapters um uh, people in my writer's group will say you know what i'm I'm not really believing this and i and then then i start thinking okay what what can i make what can i do to make this believable what what because sometimes sometimes the believability comes from the fact that you know readers don't know like i had this one book called extinction where there were these um there were these cyborg insects um in which there were little chips placed in a living insect and the chips allow radio control of the insect so you can make the insect you know turn left turn right and you can make them start flying stop flying and you can attach a tiny little camera to the insect <laughs> and um i remember you know one of my i think it was my editor actually uh at st martin said to me you know i i'm i'm okay with most of this book but this um stuff with those cyborg insects that's just weird and i said you know what that's taken directly from life there was there was in 2008 there was this you know defense department program where they did this and i i i showed them the videos where you see the scientists they're 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 taking videos of the insects they say okay turn them left okay turn, there were these big like they were kind of like japanese beetles i think they uh-huh. used and and move them right you know and you could see it, the insect going around the lab and he said okay you know maybe maybe you know mention that like you know that the pentagon has already started working on this maybe mention it in the in the author's note or something mm-hmm. something because it it is hard to believe that we're capable of doing this yeah. right now and, and uh, so so you, you have to even so for something like that you really have to do some work to convince the reader yeah this is possible it's not that hard you're just you're just stimulating a flight muscle in the insect's back it's we have the technology to do this you know yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating. I remember, you know, of course, like a classic science-based thrillers, like say Jurassic Park or something, where where all of a sudden you start reading, and you're like, all right, well, but then you're like, okay, they can clone stuff. All right, they've cloned stuff. Well, maybe if they got the DNA, they could make the D- oh, okay, and then you start following track by track until suddenly you're like, there really are dinosaurs on some island somewhere. You know, it's like build up the believability until we come to that moment where we're like yes there yes there are dinosaurs out there somewhere i totally believe that <laughs> yeah so it's it's so much fun and um when you hear from readers do you ever you know hear from a reader and they're like you know um this story scared me because i could picture you know this technology happening or anything like that um i've had I've had a few people write to me and be like, is this really out there? And I don't always tell them if it is or not, but I'm like, you never know. <laughs> it's like, just play with it. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think now science education has gotten better, I think, in the past uh, a few decades. And uh, and so people, and I'm glad to see that, like, you know, the uh, the people's um, uh, total awe at the pictures from the James Webb telescope. I mean, that's been one, like one of the biggest science stories of the year. It's this incredible accomplishment. You know, and it's good news. This is something we've never been able to do. It's, uh, you know, it's unalloyed good news. And so it kind of distracts people away from the wars and everything else we've got going right now. And so that's why, you know, um, I'm glad to see when my readers, you know, do, you know, understand and love the science and, and, and are keeping up with it. And I think that's, that's what we can help as, as authors is get them excited about science. I love looking at technology that's emerging and trying to guess, you know, where things might be in a few years, whenever my book comes out, because I want to be a little step ahead of it, if that's, possible. And um, I remember I was writing one book many years ago um, and I had this idea. I was like, what if you could hum something and a computer could listen to it and tell you what song that was? I mean, that would be amazing if a computer could do that. Like no one, no, no computers can do that now. And so I'm writing this book thinking that I'm like, way cutting edge and then of course i look in i don't know wired magazine or somewhere and they're like yeah this is like humming technologies or whatever it was i was like come on man i thought i had something yeah well i remember when i was still at scientific american this is like 15 20 years ago when that shazam uh came out and that's, oh, the, uh -huh. that's the program that identifies you know uh you know from the first few notes what a song is and and it, yeah it seemed amazing to me and and you know now it's commonplace of course yeah, it's just crazy. So now um, when you're writing uh, your stories, I think many of them have been standalones, but you've done some series books. What to you is the advantage or disadvantage of writing a standalone book as opposed to developing an entire series? Well, I think, you, you know, when you start working on a book, um, whether an idea feels like a standalone or a series, because, you know, sometimes Sometimes uh, it's the, the, the premise is, is of the idea. It's, it's so um, dominating for the book that it, it's hard to imagine bringing back the same characters and doing something equally, um, you know, uh, crazy or, or wild or, or, or so. So, for example, in, in, in this book that I've just written, The Doomsday Show, you know, I, yeah, I could bring back the characters for another book, but it just it would seem um, forced in a way. I think yeah. you have to find a situation where your characters, um, either it's a continuing story, it, it lends itself to a continuing story, or uh, the characters are, you know, in some kind of official capacity, uh, uh, you know, destined to encounter interesting situations again and again. For the first example, um, you know, I did write uh, young adult books, and the first one was uh, called The Six, and that was a trilogy. Uh, and that one, sort of made sense because it, it felt more like, um, you know, uh, one of these mini series where, you know, uh, the premise of this book, The Six, was that there are these terminally ill teenagers, um, some of them suffering from cancer, some of them from muscular dystrophy, and um, they're go each of them is going to die within six months. But the army, uh, well, the father of one of their, their these teenagers works for the army, and uh, he has developed a technology for um, transferring their intelligences, their whole consciousness hmm. into a robot and turning these teenagers into ro and robots. And in that way, they will survive. Of course, they'll lose their human bodies, which will die, but the um, but their, their minds will survive inside the robotic bodies. And so the question is, 
um, are they really the same teenagers? You know, just because, you know, it, it raises questions of identity. Um, you know, are, are, is it is it still you, or is it a copy of you, and is that the same thing? And of course, for teenagers, suddenly being in a metallic body, you know, that's got to be a bummer in some ways. But <laughs> it's also got to be great in other ways because you know you're you're super strong and fast and all these things. And I thought it would be interesting to have a team of these teenagers, and and of course, their their villain is this uh, pure software this this ai that is just purely evil and has taken over a nuclear missile base and so they have to they have to fight this thing but i thought well you know and so you you end the story you know of course the but the ai escapes through the internet somehow oh. and so you could see how well they've got to keep fighting this thing and they've got to keep you know it, you know with, with they've got to keep uh, making this adjustment you know i've i've just shown the beginning really of this story mm -hmm. of their adjustment to robotic bodies obviously one of the one of the advantages of having a robotic body is you can constantly upgrade it. So I thought, okay, you know what I did in the first book? That's that was just primitive. Those were just primitive. I can make the robot so much cooler in the second book, and in the third book, forget about it. So you see, that was the kind of story that lent itself well to um, you know to further further books. And so so I think I think you have to look. Any writer has to look at an idea and say, okay, does this lend itself? Does this feel like more like a standalone idea or more like a series idea? Now. What would you say are some of your personally, uh, I guess, the personal challenges you have when writing a novel? In other words, like some people, um, it's plot or character, dialogue, whatever it is. Or some people, it's just the fact that, look, I'm writing, you know, 500 page book and I, I just have to chop away at, chop away at it. But would are there any specific areas that you personally are like, you know, this is one of the areas I just really have to work hard on in order to shape and, and get these stories together. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, from from the beginning, I uh I I I'm not one of these these writers who the ideas just pop into their heads instantly. I wish I wish I was. I'm I'm always looking for uh, the next good idea, but then just getting the idea is not enough. I have to figure out what you know, what are the characters who are best suited mm -hmm. for this idea and how where is the conflict? You know, who are the villains? You know, uh, and then, you know, what is the twist? There's got to be twists. There's got to be, you know, a big twist, but also lots of little minor surprises throughout the whole thing. And so uh, for me, just, you know, the biggest challenge is just laying out what's going to happen and then leaving enough room so that while I'm writing it, you know, if good ideas come to me, I can incorporate that into the book. So I, I think for me, that's the biggest challenge is, is the idea work um, because, um, because that's that's when you're just facing nothing but blankness and, you, and you're like, God, I don't have any. Please, someone give me an idea. Do you write from, okay, so do you write more from a dilemma, like a moral dilemma or more from a theme? In other words, like a lot of people who write from a theme are like, okay, my theme of my book is we should forgive people or or friendship is powerful or whatever it might be. Other people write from more of a dilemma, like, well, if I had to face this difficult decision between what's more important, protecting the innocent or telling the truth, what would I do? And and um, I think that I know where I land on that. I was just curious, do you have one or the other of those that tend to influence the direction of your stories? Well, I, I think you really need both of those things. Mm -hmm. I mean, but I generally start with the theme. I, I start with the idea okay, I want to write a book about, you know, global warming, this mm -hmm. climate change crisis that, you know, it's, it's, it's in the news every day. We need to do something about it. People are trying different things, you know. And so that was the theme of that. But then I thought, okay, what, what's the dilemma here? And then so the dilemma became, 
you know, would you do anything, anything at all, no matter how morally outrageous, to stop global warming? Because you could justify it by saying, well, in the end, you know, um, the 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 you know the the ends justify the means, and um, and so so yeah, it started with the theme. I, I knew I knew the, the the subject, but then then you need that you need the dilemma there, and then and then you start creating characters uh, that will ex- that will express the different sides of the dilemma. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I, um, I have never really, I've only written one book with a theme that I know of. For me, I always kind of default back to dilemma. And so, yeah, it's fascinating to hear that, um, that kind of, uh, you know, approach and perspective. Um, now we talked a little bit about your newest book. Is there anything else you want to tell us about, about the, the book? It comes out, I think in early October, um, right, October 4th, that's right. October 4th is the big release date. So of course, if re- readers are listening and they haven't ordered it yet, we want them to pre-order the book. Or if you're listening now and you're like, wait, that already came out, then of course, order it now. Um, uh, any other, you know, like inside information or uh, anything you'd like readers to know about the the latest story? Well, yeah, um, you know, I also included as a, an appendix, a nonfiction appendix to the book. You know, there are organizations that have identified the worst climate criminals. Actually, what they've what they've identified are the uh, the twenty uh, biggest contributors to um, to greenhouse gases over the past fifty years, and these are the they're generally you know oil and coal companies. Um, and so I, I did that you know just to show. That you know, there's you know, I want to emphasize the relevance of this book. It it is a very timely topic. It is something we have to start thinking about because um, bet, better to have these stories told now and have people start thinking about it than to actually encounter you know you know terrorists who 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 will who will turn to violent means uh, if we do nothing about this issue. Because you know the thing about global warming, if I could pontificate a little here, <laughs> that, um, is that you know its effects are not equal to everyone. You know that you know in in the rich developed countries we're we're somewhat insulated from these effects. We can we can run to higher ground. We can you know we have things like insurance. We 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 have things like air conditioning that don't exist in a lot of other parts of the world. You know, and so if there's a terrible heat wave, uh, as there was you know earlier this year in India, you know a lot of these people don't have air conditioning, and so there's there's a chance that you know many many people will die. And so you have a situation where whenever you know you have there's a dis, there's a, a mismatch between the effects of this thing we, where some people are affected a lot, a lot more. You could see people turning to asymmetric warfare, to terrorism, in order to uh, do something about the producers of, of so of global you know greenhouse gases. And so what I'm saying is you know let's let's start thinking about this. That's what that's what fiction is all about. Let's start thinking about this and and what we can do as ordinary people you know um, to contribute to the solution. So yeah. so yeah you know I don't want to. I don't want to become, I'm not a, an advocate and I'm not really an activist. I'm more a writer, uh-huh. uh, you know, novelist. I like good stories. You know, there are people who, there are people, activists who probably hate my book too, because it's, you know, oh, there's all these eco-terrorists. You're, you're, you're slandering the movement. You know, I, I do believe in a, you know, primarily I want to write a good story and I don't care so much what I'm saying, you know, politically, <laughs> but, but I, but I do think that this is, um, you know, something that I, I wanted to, you know, really strongly talk about. So yeah. No, I mean clearly it's um it's an important topic. Um, uh, when you were talking about you know some eco terrorists and stuff, I remember reading a book back in probably the eighties 
And I want to see if you recognize the name of this. Edward Abbey's book. The Monkey Wrench Gang. Yes. How about it's that? Good for you. Came out, it came out in 1976. You know, I just recently oh, okay. reread it. And it's it's an amazingly funny book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, his characters, they're crazy. You know, they they and and they're also very inconsistent. I mean, they're they they want to blow up dams, but at the same time, they're throwing beer cans at him <laughs> all the time. It's a very funny book. Um, and and so I do think that that the reason part of the reason why and it became a classic, a cult classic, yeah. and a lot, in fact, a lot of the eco-terrorists in the Earth First movement. You know, that was their Bible, the Monkey Ranch Gang. Yeah. It was a novel. That was their Bible. Hard to believe that novelists can affect the world, right? Huh. Uh, but we can. And so that's why I really wanted to make the Doomsday Show also entertaining, funny. You know, I, that's why I made the main characters. They're, they're show people. They're, mm-hmm. they're street theater people. And I actually, uh, they, they take Broadway musical tunes and they put environmental lyrics, environmental protest lyrics to those songs. And so I create these parody songs in the book. Uh, that are kind of like the songs in the old Mad magazine where they used to do parodies, <laughs> you know, sung to the tune of this or that. And so I do that. Uh, and and so I want readers, and I, I've had several re- several friends of mine said, yeah, there's there's Broadway show tunes in my book. And they go, okay, you got me at Broadway show tunes. I'm going to read it now. <laughs> so, so I think anything you could do to make something like entertaining, like the Monkey Wrench Gang was entertaining, mm-hmm. will help, you know, convey the message as well. Yeah, no, entertainment. I think people... You know, when people start sometimes with a specific theme or a message or topic or something like that, I, I've read some books over the last few years and I've seen some movies and so on where that seems to take over, over the entertainment factor. And you're like, okay, I get it. I know I'm supposed to, whatever it is, whatever the message of that is. And I find that that sort of undermines my um, engagement with the story where I, I love stories that do make me think, though, where I'm reading it. I'm like, I actually never thought of that before. That's pretty powerful. And then entertain me along the way. Those are those tend to be the ones that I love. Yeah. Well, Another good example of this is, is Carl Hyacin, who wrote this book called Tourist Season, which was it came out in the late 80s. Hmm. And it was also had this environmental theme, but it was done in a funny way. Basically, these his eco-terrorists would um, kidnap Florida tourists and feed them to alligators because they figured, well, this is the way that, you know, the ecosystem will get its revenge on the people who are despoiling. But it was, it was a funny book. And in the end, the terrorists get their comeuppance, but Uh he he got his point in, you know? So do you have any advice or suggestions for people out there who are like, look, I love science. I love fiction. And I think one of the things that makes you unique uh, a little bit is you're a scientist. You come from a scientific background and everything, but you also poetry, like also writing and story. And a lot of people look at that as like maybe a dichotomy, a person of science or a person of imagination, whatever it might be. But let's say that someone is out there and they're like, look, I want to write a story. I have this idea and stuff. What would you give them any suggestions as far as writing within this realm or or guidance uh, that might might help them out. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I would tell them, you know, what are you most fascinated by? What is what is intrigues you the most? What what kind of science intrigues you the most? And then you know, study up on it because you know it, that is is actually pretty fun, right? Right there, just just learning about it. Yeah. And um and as far as turning it into a story, I think you know it, you know giving it some kind of twist, either either taking it a little farther or examining maybe a dark side of this technology that people hadn't even thought of yet. You know, you know, I've done that in a, in a few of my books where, um, for example, there was my book extinction where 
that that was the one with the cyborg insects. Yeah. <laughs> it was also there's there's these brain chips um, in in this book, and and so um, I I thought well this uh, the Chinese government could use these brain chips to try to link the brains of executed political dissidents to a surveillance network, and that sounds crazy enough as it is. You know, <laughs> you know they have these 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 lobotomized dissidents who are who are getting fed all of this video surveillance information and their 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 brains are locating the threats you know their their comrades in the in the dissident organizations that the chinese government is trying to stamp out and i thought well that's scary enough but what about what if this surveillance network gains a super consciousness of its own <laughs> and then decides to you know attack the chinese government itself and maybe take it over and launch a nuclear war who knows so i thought okay there's an idea, right, for, <laughs> for a thriller, you know, and then, and, but then the next step is, okay, who's, we, I have the villain, so in that one, I started with the villain, who's the hero, and, you know, I sort of thought, how about a, how about this ex-military scientific genius who designs uh, prosthetic arms, because he lost his arm, and he, he realized that, you know, the, the Defense Department doesn't have good prosthetics, which it doesn't, and, and, it, and, and it's been working hard to develop better ones for for wounded vets, um, what? So I thought, oh, that's a very sympathetic character. And I thought, what if he's the one who encounters this, you know, crazy man machine, uh, you know, surveillance network? So, so you see how the process works. You just, yeah. you just have to uh, imagine. Sometimes just imagining what's the worst thing that can happen. That's always a good, <laughs> good thought process for any writer. I love it. That's great. I don't even know how many times in the last. Um three or four minutes you said well what if what if what if yeah. this and what if that and and um that um that very often that can be one of the greatest questions to ask to uncover uncover a grand new story so well i've really enjoyed our conversation before we close up i have two closing questions that i've started to ask my guests just for fun yeah. so the first is what is one novel or or what is the one novel besides any of yours that everyone should read before they die. What novel would you say? Look, everyone should read this this novel. Wow, um, I would say The Grapes of Wrath. Huh? Because Good. especially if you're an American, because that's you know a, a wonderful book about America uh, and the, the various class struggles we've had. And, and so, yeah, I love that book. Excellent. Yeah. Good. And the second question is. What is one thing you wish you could tell your younger self back when you were a teenager? What would you wish that you could tell your teenage self, Mark? Wow, that's a good one. Um, I I would say to myself, um, it's going to work. You you just got to keep at it. Don't get too frustrated. Don't put your life on hold hmm. while you're waiting for one thing. You know, just keep doing things because that you know life is what happens while you're waiting for something else. Very good. Look at that. Good advice. So, Mark, thanks so much for being here and uh, for your time, also for your work over the years and your friendship. I've really enjoyed it. And it's great to catch up a little bit and hear your advice on writing. Well, Stephen, it's really wonderful to talk to you. And, um, you know, if, if any of your listeners want to uh, check out my books, uh, you can go to my website. It's uh, www.markalpert.com. It's spelled like Herb Alpert, the trumpeter. It's with a P. So markalpert.com. Perfect. And uh, I was just going to ask you that. What's the best place to go? And are you on any social media, um, you know, forums or anything where people could follow you there? Or is that? Yeah, sure. You, you know, Facebook, uh, Twitter, huh? Instagram. Yeah. So just just look up Mark Alpert on those things. You'll find me there, too. 
Excellent. Um, so everyone, I want you to check out Mark's books. Also, um, you, you know, if you haven't ordered the newest one, um, order that. If you like young adult novels, what is the name of your young adult series once more, Mark? Uh, the first book is The Six. The, the six, six. six. And then there's The Siege and The Silence are the, the three books. And um, and the, my latest book, again, is The Doomsday Show. Yeah, The Doomsday Show. Everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, for more info about our guests and to check out our other interviews, you can search for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, or click to thestoryblender.com. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts. Tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next time.